If you're curious to engage with a lot of the topics we explore on the podcast in more creative and embodied ways, we welcome you to join us in Alchemize, our 10-week audio-based program of daily imagination practices intended to disrupt status quo ways of thinking, sensing, relating, and being. To be honest, without any grant support for our show right now, and we did just get turned down by several mainstream environmentalism philanthropies, this program and our Patreon are our primary means of supporting our labor for these free podcasts right now. We really want to remain untethered to corporate interests, and every small contribution to our Patreon or enrollment in our program Alchemize helps to ensure that we can continue producing these vital conversations that feature voices and perspectives often sidelined from mainstream media. So if you value our work and want to dive deeper with us, join us in Alchemize today at greendreamer.com slash alchemize and join our Patreon starting at just $3 at patreon.com slash greendreamer. Thank you so, so much for however you were able to support our work during these critical times. We are so deeply grateful. You're listening to Green Dreamer, a listener-supported podcast, and I'm your host, Kamea Shane. As we embark on a new year for the show, we would love to invite you to join our Patreon community, where we'll begin to share bonus episode offerings, some of my own reflections on these conversations, and more. If you've been with us for a while, you also know that we often explore ideas and perspectives that go against mainstream currents in order to seed more imaginative thinking for what could be. So if you value our platform and curiosities and intention and want to support us to break through the noise of mainstream media, join us today on Patreon at greendreamer.com support. Even though most of us barely ever think about it, Sand is actually the most used natural resource in the world after air and water. I call it the most important solid substance on earth. We use about 50 billion tons of it every year. That's enough to cover the entire state of California with sand every single year. But why do we use so much sand? What, what in the world are we using all this sand for? Well, basically sand is it's the literal foundation of modern civilization. And by that I mean, it's the thing that our cities are literally made out of. Today we're speaking with Vince Beiser, an award-winning journalist and author based in Los Angeles. He's the author of The World in a Grain, the story of sand and how it transformed civilization. Vince has reported from over 100 countries, states, provinces, kingdoms, occupied territories, liberated areas, no man's lands, and disaster zones. He's exposed conditions in California's harshest prisons, trained with troops bound for Iraq, ridden with the first responders to disasters in Haiti and Nepal, scouted the radioactive ruins of Fukushima, and hunted down many other stories for various publications. One day I just ran across this story in a newspaper from India about a guy who had been murdered over sand. Hmm. And I just thought that just seemed like the weirdest thing to me. I was like, sand? What? Why would anybody get killed over sand, right? I mean, it just, who cares about sand? It just seems like the, the least important thing in the world. And it seems like it's something that's everywhere. And 
who cares? Like, why did this happen? Right? So I was really intrigued. So I started looking into it and came to find out very quickly that not only had this one guy, this farmer named Pale Ram Chohan, not only had he been murdered over sand, but hundreds of people have been murdered over sand in the last few years. And the reason for that is, turns out, even though most of us barely ever think about it, sand is actually the most used natural resource in the world after air and water. I call it the most important solid substance on earth. We use about 50 billion tons of it every year. That's enough to cover the entire state of California with sand every single year. So why do we use so much sand? What, what in the world are we using all this sand for? Well, basically sand is, it's the literal foundation of modern civilization. And by that, I mean, it's the thing that our cities are literally made out of, right? Pretty much every, every house, every apartment block, every office tower, every shopping mall, everywhere in the world is made with concrete, right? And concrete is basically just sand and gravel that have been stuck together. So if you look at any, the skyline of any city, all those skyscrapers, it's all huge, huge piles of sand, billions of tons of sand. And it's not just the buildings. It's also every single window in every one of those buildings, every piece of glass everywhere in the world is made from sand. Glass is just sand that's been, that's been melted down and fused into sand. All the roads that connect all those buildings are also made out of sand. They're either concrete or they're asphalt, both of which, again, are just sand and gravel that have been stuck together. Even the computer, uh, the, the silicon chips that power our computers, the computers we're talking over right now, that power your cell phone, any digital gizmo, the silicon chips in there are also made out of sand. Mm. So basically, no sand, no modern civilization. And the crazy thing is, we are starting to run out. And supplies are getting so tight in some places that we're doing massive environmental damage to get the sand that we need to to keep building modern cities, tearing up forests and stripping beaches bare, tearing up riverbeds to get that sand. And also, in some places, a black market has grown up, right? There's criminal gangs trafficking in illegal sand, and they do what organized crime does everywhere. If, you know, they, they pay off, they bribe cops and government officials and everybody else to leave them alone. But if you really get in their way, and this is exactly what happened to the farmer that I first read about. If you really get in their way and try to stop them from stealing sand, they will kill you. So that's kind of that's kind of where we are today. Wow. All of this makes me question why why do not more people know about how big of an issue this is? And I certainly hope that this conversation can help bring greater awareness on this. You share that the process of pulling sand from the earth causes at best a little damage and at worst catastrophe. We've shared multiple conversations on minerals mining before, but I wonder if you can shine a light on the actual process of sand mining and how it's similar or different in terms of the range of impact that it can have on local communities and the more than human world based on the different forms and scale of sand extraction that there are. 
Sure. Yeah, that's a good question. So sand, I mean, it, it, it's called sand mining, the process of, of extracting sand from the earth. So it sort of fits in the, in the bigger category of, of mining and resource extraction. It's a bit different from most mineral mining because basically because there's so much sand and there's it, you find it in so many different types of places. You don't have to do, um, you know, if you're going after minerals like uh, gold or iron or, you know, metals that we need, you usually have to do a lot of blasting. Like you have to dig these huge pits and, and blast apart the rock and the earth to get down to them and then separate it out from the from the ore, which creates a lot of waste material. So in on that level, sand mining is not as damaging because it's much easier to get. Basically, you don't have to like destroy as much to get to it. That said, because it's so easy to get, the very fact that it's the, of where it is can be a big problem. What do I mean by that? So we get sand in lots of ways. We get some from from land based pits, which are very similar to any other kind of like open pit mining. You basically go and rip up the topsoil, trees, whatever is is uh, in your way, strip away the, the soil, and then just start digging out the sand. But probably the most common way that we get sand is from uh, rivers. The reason for that is it's really easy. Basically, you just, all you need to do is get a big uh, dredge, like a big f boat, put it out in the middle of a big river, like the, the Yangtze or the Mekong or the Mississippi, any big river, and drop a pipe down to the bottom of the river. And just, it's like a straw, just <laughs> suck all that sand right up into your boat. It's super easy. It's cheap, and then you've got all the sand on your boat, and you can take it wherever you're going to sell it. The problem is that causes a lot of damage, right? If you think about it, you're literally ripping up the riverbed. So first of all, anything that was living down on that riverbed, any kind of fish or shellfish or any kind of plant life that was down there, well, their habitat has just been annihilated completely. Also, when you do that, you stir up all kinds of sand, you know, the silt and the muck and the mud and whatever was down there, and that clouds up the water, right? It pollutes the river water, which can kill whatever's swimming up in the water. Any kind of, again, fish, you know, mammals like porpoises that are swimming in the water, they can literally suffocate from all the silt that gets thrown up into the water. Also, all that silt blocks the sunlight from getting down through the water to feed underwater plants. So it can kill off all kinds of, of underwater plant life as well. So that kind of sand mining has decimated mangrove forests, coral reefs, fish populations, and also birds that live off of those fish populations. And also in a lot of places, the human beings that, that make their living from fishing. Lots of places, local fisheries have been completely wiped out thanks to sand mining, right? Sand miners go in, tear up all the sand, all the fish get killed. The fisher folk who are, you know, living alongside the river for God knows how many years, all of a sudden there's no more fish. Wow. Uh, yeah, definitely sounds like there's a huge range of ways that this is done and 
therefore different levels of impact that it can have. And certain forms are, of course, more disruptive to the existing communities and ecosystems than others. And I want to bring in this quote that you shared. So you said, if you forbid sand mining in your backyard, as many American communities do, then the sand to build your highways and shopping malls will have to be brought in from somewhere else, end quote. This brings me flashbacks to my conversation with Guillaume Piton when he was pointing out that quote-unquote clean energy might be clean in terms of not having pollution at the point of usage, but in reality, the toxic mining processes and pollution really just have been outsourced, mostly to quote-unquote developing nations and more rural, lower-income areas or indigenous territories. I actually noted another similarity with you having pointed out that Glass may be clear when they exit factories, but the surrounding air is certainly not clear. And in fact, of course, that manufacturing process results in pollution in various forms. So just to elaborate on all of this further, I wonder if you can share more about this landscape of injustice that you've noticed play out as it has to do with sand mining, as in who has been disproportionately benefiting or profiting off of this extraction? Where has the mining disproportionately taken place? And who are the communities and workers, too, who have been the most detrimentally impacted by these processes? So sand mining happens, I mean, probably in every single country on earth because there is sand pretty much everywhere and there's concrete pretty much everywhere with concrete being the number one thing that we use sand for. So, you know, you can imagine there's a whole, whole range of, of impact, you know, of how it gets, how it gets done and, and who suffers and who profits as a result. I'll say, you know, for sure, so first of all, it's it's different from other kinds of mining in that, like things like cobalt, you know, which comes like cobalt is a material is a metal that we need for electric vehicles and batteries for all of our uh, digital gizmos. And cobalt overwhelmingly comes from one country, which is Democratic Republic of Congo, right? So those folks there, they they really bear the brunt of of cobalt extraction. Sand is different because, like I say, it's pretty much pretty much every country, more or less, has their own sand industry. So most of the sand that we use here in the United States, for instance, or in Canada, where I'm talking to you from, it comes domestically. It's sourced within the country, usually. Not always, but, but usually. So the biggest problems really are in, in the developing world, where you've got this combination of really fast, fast growing uh, economies and booming cities and really slack regulations and, and uh, sort of rule of law, right? Like, so India is, is probably the, the hardest hit country in the world because so there that India is a place where the economy is growing really fast and cities are growing really fast. People are pouring out of the countryside moving into cities, just like they did in, in this country 100 years ago, right? That's just sort of goes with economic development. So it means that they need a huge amount of sand in a really, really big hurry. And in India, they actually have pretty good laws on the books to protect the environment, right? Especially from sand mining, right? There's really good laws about where you can't mine sand here, you can mine it here, but only a certain amount to a certain depth, blah, blah, blah. But there's so much corruption in the system that uh, it's really easy for, for illegal miners to just 
ignore those rules and, and pass around a few bribes, which again is what was happening in the, the case that I heard of in the first place. So, you know, the folks who suffer, of course, are the folks who live wherever the the sand is is being extracted, right? It's farmers who are having their, their fields torn up. It's people living um, alongside the rivers where the, the, the fisheries are being wiped out. In some places, like, like in the Mekong River in Vietnam, there's so much sand being taken out that not only is it damaging the fish populations, but the riverbanks in lots of places are collapsing, right? Huge miles-long stretches of riverbank are just falling into the river because so much has been taken out of the bottom. And people's homes, streets, highways are literally collapsing into the river. So you got that kind of thing going on. In a lot of places, uh, uh, drinking water supplies get damaged again because when you mess with the river that severely, it can really disrupt drinking water supplies. So in some places, conflict has broken out between local folks, you know, whoever was was living there and the sand miners. Like in Kenya, there was about a dozen people killed a couple of years back because this uh, group of sand miners came to this area and started pulling out all the sand, started really messing up the drinking water. And the local people literally fought back with guns and, and knives and machetes and everything else. And a whole bunch of people wound up dead. Wow. So as I say, it, it's a whole, it's really a whole gamut. Uh, it, that said, I mean, in some places, like a lot of sand gets extracted that doesn't necessarily do that much harm, right? It always, you rip out anything from the earth, it's going to cause some damage. Yes. But in a lot of places, like in Canada where I live, we have pretty good rules on the books to limit and to control where you can mine sand, how much you can mine, et cetera, et cetera. Not that it, not saying it doesn't cause any environmental problems. It certainly causes some but it's a lot less than than you find in a lot of other uh, countries around the world. Mm. Yeah, and generally speaking, it is a lot of these nation-state governments attempting to use regulation to address the destructive impacts of sand extraction that kind of led to the boom of the black market in sand, right? And that just still, I'm still thinking about this because I just never would have thought that this was a thing, like to have a black market in sand, but learning how how it is the number one solid resource that we use, it totally makes sense. And I guess I'm curious, what do we know in terms of how much of the sand supply chain relies on sources coming from the black market, as well as the corners that might get cut or the workers in places that don't get at least the bare minimum of protection or informed consent that they need, given the hazardous processes sometimes entailed. Right. Yeah, that's an excellent question. How much of how much of the global sand trade is is black market? The short answer, unfortunately, is nobody knows because mm. it's a very you know it's it's something that I mean, as like you mentioned earlier on, it's something that really the whole issue just doesn't get very much attention. That's slowly starting to change, but governments, researchers, journalists, all the folks who usually keep an eye on these kinds of issues, most of them are only just starting to really tune into this particular one. So nobody knows for sure. We do know it's a lot. And uh, I know that it's a lot because I've documented illegal sand mining in dozens and dozens of countries all over the world. Like I say, India is probably the most extreme example because there's so much violence that seems to go with the trade there. But people have also been murdered 
over sand in, uh, in Indonesia, in Ghana, in Kenya, in Mexico, in a lot of countries around the world, there's violence that goes with the trade. And for sure, there's illegal, like I say, illegal sand mining happening in, in dozens and dozens of countries, including in the United States. They do catch people every now and then digging up sand, you know, in, in places where it's not permitted for one reason or another. So, you know, it's really hard to get a fix on, but it's definitely big. And the global sand market is something like a hundred billion dollar global industry. Mm. So it's a safe bet that if only 1% of that is, is illegal, which seems like a very, very conservative estimate, you know, we're talking about a billion dollars worth of, of black market sand floating around the world. Yeah. I think a lot of people are starting to ask questions like where our food comes from, where the fibers for our clothes come from and who made them and so forth. And these things feel a lot more direct and relatable. But I don't think many people ask, you know, where our concrete blocks come from or where the sand <laughs> for this glass window or this glass door comes from. So, yeah, it really stresses how important it is for us to keep digging deeper and asking these questions. And towards the beginning, you offered a glimpse into how integral sand has been for building 20th century industrialized nations. And obviously, there's a lot of diversity in people's cultural values and how they define what a good life looks like for their communities. A lot of our past guests of different cultural backgrounds have push back against imposed development and dominant visions of progress. And I think a lot of people today are also starting to question things like the American dream that involves ideals of huge mansions, fancy fuel-guzzling cars, and just really energy-intensive lifestyles in general, and whether that really is the key to a meaningful life, an enriching life of joy and happiness. But that aside, when we're talking about how systems and infrastructure have been designed or the incentives driving those decisions, a lot of times pe people might feel a sense of dissatisfaction and disagreement with the top-down visions of development taking place, but given their limited capacity as people often just trying to support themselves and their families inside this matrix, they have to work within the limits of what's already been set up. And many have to climb this systematized ladder, so to say, to increase their sense of security. Just as an example, around a lot of major cities, Many of the jobs people need to earn a living are located in the more centralized areas that tend to be more expensive, so maybe they have to live further out. But because of the ways that a lot of our transportation networks have already been set up and calcified and affixed in a sort of way, most people have to work with that and strive towards goals that make sense given this picture that already exists. So I share this to preface and to ask if you think that a lot of communities have sort of been locked in to our dependence on sand mining and extraction due to the foundations that many industrialized places have already created and locked ourselves into in terms of all sorts of things from the building standards and codes to transportation systems and so on. Yeah, wow, that's a that's a great question. That's a, that's another big and and broad one. Yeah, I mean the the template of modernity which was created in the western world with cities, roads, big buildings, factories, that template has been copied all over the world and that template rests solidly on sand, on concrete and glass. 
So to a certain extent, I mean, it's, it's almost impossible to avoid, right? Like if you want to have, if you want people to be able to visit, to reach your country with an airplane, you need an airport and an airport is a building, you know, at the very least you need a great big concrete runway and you're probably going to build the airport itself out of concrete and you're going to need roads going out to that airport. And those are also made out of sand. So, you know what I'm saying? Like if you're sort of, if you, unless you're like, you know, Bhutan or somewhere like that, that really cuts itself off from the rest of the world, you, yeah, you can't really avoid it. Is that a good thing? That's, that's a really big question. So obviously, like, I don't think that the world, we'll put it this way. Even if we wanted to let everybody on earth live uh, the American dream lifestyle with the great big cars and the great big McMansion and all that, we can't. There's just not enough physical resources on the planet to build that many roads and shopping malls and SUVs for 8 billion people. We just do not have enough stuff. So we've absolutely got to come up with a model of how we can live our lives and build our cities, which is where most people on the planet now live, that use less sand, not only less sand, but less of all resources. That's, you know, that's sort of the crucial job. That said, sort of if you're bearing that in mind, sand is, a, is actually a really good building material, right? We've got to build stuff, right? We've got to build structures for people to live in. It's nice to have roads for people to get around on. And sand and concrete are, are really good for that. Concrete's really, the, the reason that it's, you know, the biggest, the most dominant building material on the planet is it's cheap. It's really easy to work with. And you can build stuff with it really, really fast. So I think there's definitely a role for it. I don't, in fact, I can't, I don't think there's anything we can replace it with on the scale that we use concrete. I mean, there's other building materials, obviously. But if you're really looking at a planetary scale, talking about you know trying to house billions of people, I don't think there's really an alternative. But we certainly don't need to be, we need to be much smarter and much more careful about how much of it we use and how we use it. Does that make sense? Hmm. Yeah. So concrete has various advantages when it comes to its use for buildings. And something that I'm still processing is this idea of concrete actually not being very durable. So mm. you make this remark that perhaps the most frightening aspect of our dependence on concrete is that the structures we build with it won't last. The vast majority of them will need to be replaced and relatively soon. So in short, we've built a disposable world using a short-lived material, the manufacture of which generates millions of tons of greenhouse gases, end quote. And this sparks several trains of thoughts and inquiries for me. Yeah, so the first one being, and we don't have to get too technical here, but what would be like a more durable building material than concrete? Because for me, at least, I somehow had this idea that concrete um, is quite permanent, at least compared to other things like wood as building materials. And the second one, my second train of thought, which doesn't necessarily have a right answer to, would be kind of 
this relationship between durability and sustainability in the sense of planetary health. And I'm not mm-hmm. sure if I can articulate this well, but I'll do my best. But mm-hmm. my dad actually grew up in a mud house that my grandparents built by hand in Taiwan because they were a subsistence mm-hmm. family. And mm-hmm. one could say that, you know, the houses built with mud or untreated wood or bamboo and so forth are not very durable and therefore not sustainable in the sense of the health of our lands. But if we took on the perspective that everything eventually needs to kind of be composted and recycled back into the earth and, Mm -hmm. yeah, to support this regenerative process, then some people might view such compostability of homes as actually being healthier for the planet. And I share this Mm -hmm. not to say that concrete buildings crumbling is a good thing at all, but perhaps just as a thought of maybe we have to take into account durability as something that's relative as in you know if buildings were created through materials readily gathered from a landscape as a lot of homes for more land-based communities are then maybe their relative crumbleability isn't necessarily problematic other than of course the security of the buildings against natural disasters or you know just requiring more maintenance and labors of care but If buildings are made with materials that have been extremely taxing for the places and communities where they were extracted from, and if these materials could also leave toxic waste as the materials break down, like, I don't know what typically binds sand together to create concrete, but maybe this is where their lack of durability becomes a problem. And I hope this kind of makes sense what I'm trying to get at. I know this was pretty long-winded, but I'm just curious what these messy thoughts spark for you and what else you want to share about concrete actually being sort of disposable and not so durable. Yeah, wow, that's really interesting. I mean, I totally agree. Like, obviously, like I said, there's, you know, there's certainly other building materials, there's other things we can be building our structures out of. And one of the, you know, one way we can lessen our dependence on concrete and reduce the problems that come with concrete is by using, you know, is by using other methods, right? Like using, you know, especially, especially materials where there's, that there's a lot of wherever you're building, right? Like I'm in, I'm in the West coast of Canada. We have lots of trees. So we have lots of wood buildings and they're actually doing a lot of work right now to, to develop. Uh, it's called uh, mass timber, which I don't know if you've heard about this stuff, but it's basically you take you take wood and you sort of treat it with some chemicals so that it becomes much it becomes almost as strong as steel, and you can build really tall buildings with it, much taller than you could with just regular old wood. So it's a lot more um, hopefully sustainable. And yeah, I mean the you know the idea of like people just building building huts out of. Uh, you know, the materials that are at hand, you know, bamboo or palm leaves or whatever, you know, if it works, great. I think the real problem is like, like humanity's kind of backed itself into a corner just because of the fact that there's so many of us now, right? Like we just passed 8 billion people on this planet. And the thing is like a lot of, you know, a lot of traditional practices and solutions that work just fine when the population was much smaller, I just don't think they can, they can't really work at scale, right? It doesn't mean we have to abandon them, but, you know, I just don't see like how a place like China or India, you know, that has, that are growing fast, that already have more than a billion people, 
you know, just how they could possibly build enough housing, let alone places, you know, markets and places for, for people to work and to shop and so on, using traditional, like sort of pre-modern methods using bamboo or, or brick or mud brick or whatever. I mean, I think you can build some stuff out of that, but there's just a lot of, a lot of human beings now, way more than there's ever been before in history. And the big challenge is, you know, part of the challenge is how to help those people have a decent life, right? Because many, many, you know, billions of those 8 billions live in just, you know, appalling conditions and they deserve proper housing and they deserve good roads and all the rest of it. And it's like I say, I just, I, I can't see a way to do that. I don't, I don't see a material that can do that on that, that biggest scale besides concrete. Again, I'm not saying we should only be using concrete. We should be using less concrete, but I do think it's probably going to remain the number one building material for a while. So that leads me to think, okay, if we're stuck with concrete, what can we do to reduce the damage that comes with concrete? And this gets back to your question of how long it lasts. So one of the big problems, one problem with concrete that barely anybody thinks about um, including me, until I learned about it doing the research from my book, is yeah, all those concrete buildings sooner or later they're going to start to fall apart. So what can we do about that, right? Because I think one one of the keys to sustainability is when you build something, you want it to last. Generally speaking, you don't want it to be like the worst model is you know sort of the Las Vegas model where you build a gigantic hotel casino and it's there for five or 10 years and then you rip that one down and build a whole gigantic new one that's even bigger and fancier and nicer. That's the worst possible model, right? Best way, like better, much better is if you build something, you use up a bunch of energy and resources to build a building, you want it to stay there for as long as you can. So one way we can do that is... Uh, use better concrete, develop concrete that lasts longer, that's less prone to cracking and falling apart. And there is a lot of interest, really interesting research going on around that. There's what they call self-healing concrete, which is concrete that comes with different microbes actually embedded in it. And when the, when the concrete cracks, when a crack develops in the concrete, those microbes actually like excrete this stuff that fills in the crack. So it literally heals itself. I think that's really cool. The other really big problem with concrete is greenhouse gas emissions. So you asked what, what's used to bind together the sand and the gravel to make concrete? It's cement. A lot of people mix up concrete and cement. Cement is the glue. It's the paste that sticks together, that binds together sand and gravel to make the finished product, which is concrete. So making cement, manufacturing cement is the third biggest source of greenhouse gases in the world. That's a really big problem. So number one, how to, so how to solve that problem? Number one, let's try to use less cement. Let's try to use less concrete. I'm not saying stop using concrete, but you know, the less of it we can use, the better off we are from a greenhouse gas perspective. And also, you know, let's do what, everything we can to reduce those, those emissions. And again, there's some really interesting research and there's actually some commercial products out there of folks who are, I don't want to go down too far down this rabbit hole, but suffice mm -hmm. to say, there's folks looking into 
lowering the carbon footprint of cement. Because if you ask me, like, it, that's what it's going to take, right? There's no, there's no one solution. There's no silver bullet. It's not like we can say, okay, everybody, concrete's bad. Let's all build everything out of bamboo from here on in. Because even if we did that, even if we could replace concrete with, you know, let's say bamboo, which is actually a very good building material, if we were using 50 billion tons of bamboo every year, which is the amount of sand that we're using every year, just imagine the havoc that that would cause, right? That would create its own whole set of problems. So no matter what, we're, we're incurring costs, right? We're doing a certain amount of damage to people on the planet. And the, the trick is we've got to just keep that, bring that damage down to the barest, barest minimum that we can. I think that's, that's really the, the, the solution that we should be looking for. Not something that's going to solve all our problems. That doesn't exist. But what we want to do is like shrink our problems, the problems down as, as small as we can get, which is definitely, we can make them a lot smaller than they are today. Right. And yeah, there's there's a lot of nuance in what you just shared. Like there's also the economic injustice piece of who disproportionately uses more sand in their lifestyles, mm-hmm, the top 1% sure. as opposed to the majority who actually live quite modestly. But I definitely understand the more immediate question of how we can lessen the destructiveness of concrete in our buildings. Because given the existing, I would say, unjust picture of land ownership and land access and housing issues, yeah, I would say that this is still a very important to ask for you know our more immediate future and i also think there are other nuances that we won't get into here but what i had learned was that building upwards and i'm talking about skyscrapers not like maybe four to five story buildings but building really way high kind of locks people who live in these places into more energy intensive lifestyles just as a way of just for existing. So whether it's, you know, pumping the sewage or the water pipelines or energy or infrastructure, just or getting home through elevators every day. Yeah, there's also that nuance of another way that this vision of living and organizing society locks people into, I guess, certain certain ways of living that are more energy intensive. And again, there are no easy solutions, but just going to toss all of this out there into the mix of challenging things to consider. And my next thing is my recent conversation with Rosetta S. Elkin started to touch on the idea of retreat, as in in that context, questioning post-hurricane responses to build back better and looking to possibilities of unsettling and retreating as more adaptive strategies of resilience. And Mm -hmm. the first thing that comes to mind for a lot of people when we talk about sand are, of course, our beautiful beaches. And Mm -hmm. you've also pointed out that in terms of supporting these beach ecosystems so far, quote, we have chosen defense over retreat, end quote. I would love it if you can share more about what defense has looked like, as well as their costs and long-term viability, and then also this alternative possibility of retreat for better supporting community resilience and the protection of our beaches. Because, yeah, from my standpoint, my probably overly simplistic takeaway would be that one is sort of like preventive care and one leads us down a path of problem creation, requiring problem solving, which creates maybe more sets of problems requiring more problem solving and kind of that cycle. But yeah, curious to hear what you have to say. So basically our beaches, to start with beaches, 
Beaches are in real trouble, thanks to human beings, as usual. And the reason for that is it comes back to sand. So the problem is that beaches are disappearing all over the world. They're eroding really fast. And the, the now beaches always erode, right? Wind and waves are always washing grains off of coast and taking them out to sea. But in the normal, in the natural course of things, that sand gets replenished in two ways. One is rivers coming down from mountains flow across the land, bring sand down from the mountains and carry it out to the, you know, rivers flow out to the ocean. And when they hit the ocean, they dump all the sand they've got on the beach. That's why the, most of those beaches are there in the first place. The other thing that happens is ocean currents moving along the coastlines also carry sand and they move it from one place to another so that so in the natural course of things, beaches are always eroding, but they're always getting replenished, and there's kind of a balance there. What's happened in the modern era is we've built so much stuff, so much infrastructure, so many like jetties and marinas and harbors and dams along rivers, and also, of course, all the sand that we're taking out of rivers uh, because of sand mining, that we've basically blocked, stopped that natural inflow. So the natural erosion is continuing, but the natural replenishment in a lot of places is not. So beaches are disappearing all over the world. So Hawaii is a really good example. I mean, the beach, you know, the world famous beach of Waikiki, first of all, is a completely artificial creation. It was literally just built for the tourist industry. They dredged up, you know, millions of tons of sand from the bottom of the ocean, dumped it on the coast, created this nice beach. That beach has to be artificially replenished all the time. They have to bring in truckloads of sand from the other islands, uh, from Maui. And uh, actually, and they've brought sand. I'm, I'm talking to you from Vancouver, Canada. And uh, long about the 30s or 40s, they actually used to ship sand all the way from Canada to Hawaii to build up that beach. So we have that problem with, with beach erosion Beaches are eroding and not being replenished. So that's that's problem number one. We're, at, we're spending billions and billions of dollars to artificially replenish beaches all over the world, all over the United States, all over Europe, in lots of places, in all over the, the Middle East. And that's causing that's creating its own set of problems, right? There's all kinds of environmental issues that come along with that, et cetera, et cetera. But to bring it back to where you started with this idea of retreat. I mean, one reason that we care so much about beaches or that, you know, beaches seem so important, aside from the fact that, you know, everybody likes a beautiful beach is there's so much money tied up in beaches, right? In, right, that's where, you know, there's so many homes and hotels and real estate that we've built up along the coasts that's now really threatened by sea level rise, right? So we have this kind of, this dual problem, right? The seas are rising because of because of global warming, because the polar ice caps are melting and seas are rising. And at the same time, the beaches that provide a buffer between rich people's vacation homes or tourist hotels and those rising seas, those beaches are also disappearing. So it's kind of a double whammy. So the response, so people are aware of this, right? It's, I mean, there was just a thing, a couple of houses in North Carolina just collapsed into the sea like a couple of days ago. It was in the news. So people are very aware of this. And the response typically, like I said, is, is defense. Let's build walls. So all over the world, there are these gigantic 
defenses being built, seawalls, concrete seawalls, and other kinds of infrastructure basically designed to hold back the ocean. And I, it's just not going to work long term, right? Mm. So it really seems like, you know, one way or another, we are going to be forced to pull back from the coast, at least in some places, right? Places like Miami, Miami's going to be underwater in, you know, 30, 40, 50 years. And the only way to save all that, all those people's homes and all the real estate is to somehow move it inland. You know, people have just got to, we've just got to get away from, we've got to back away from the ocean. And historically, by the way, people knew that, right? It's only really in the modern era that people really started building houses and, and hotels and all the rest of it right up, right close to the ocean. Because historically, everybody recognized that's a terrible idea, right? Mm -hmm. The mm -hmm. waves and wind and weather, like historically, even like places that depended on fishing, they would always build places, you know, the villages, the places where people lived were always a bit inland. Nobody would build a place right on the beach because you know that's just asking for disaster. Right. Well, given how much money is invested in and held at those coastlines, the top luxury homes, luxury hotels, and so on, I'm not surprised that the go-to solution that's been pushed has been to push back the ocean. Unfortunately, this could lead to more disasters that could have been prevented. But yeah, I think perhaps it'll just have to be a very humbling journey of reminding people that we cannot control everything. And I guess we're nearing the end of our main conversation here, but in a lot of discourses on relearning to become regenerative and life-enhancing forces for our landscapes, there is this theme of reciprocity in healing our relationships with the land. When we talk about ecosystems or farming, for example, there are ways to grow food and forage and harvest food that in involve both taking and giving back so we can care for the land in ways that enrich them and then in turn allow the lands to give more to their communities as well. You started kind of touching on this cycle of sand, but I'm curious whether you see this life cycle of sand that we can recognize and honor more, which can help guide people to move away from this extractive dynamic to develop relationships with sand that is at least somewhat more rooted in reciprocity. Like, is this relationship necessarily monodirectional or are there ways that pe people can support the protection and even regeneration of sand-based ecologies? Huh. Wow. I never thought about that before. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I I don't know about reciprocity, right? Because it's not it's a mineral. It's not like it's not like farming, where uh, you know you, you have this cycle of of life, death, and and sort of rebirth. But I will say this, you know, I, like you said earlier on, I mean, most people, including me, until I stumbled across this story, right? We just never we never think about sand, and in the same way. We don't think about so many, many things. I mean, basically, like, if you look at any material, any physical part of our, of the world around you, you know, your car, your house, your clothes, your shoes, all of those things, there's a story behind them, right? They didn't just appear in the, in the store where you bought them, or they didn't just appear in the Amazon truck that delivered it to you. 
whether it's it's you know the cotton that had to be grown to make your t-shirt or the rubber that came you know from a rubber plantation in Brazil or in the Congo to make the soles of your sneakers or you know the aluminum in the in the spokes of your bicycle tire all those things all those products are made out of materials and those materials had to come from somewhere and it really really behooves us especially you know folks who you know are concerned about the health of the planet and 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 justice for the people who live on it, it really behooves us to think about that and to sort of recognize that everything, everything we use and own came at a cost, you know, caused some kind of damage somewhere on the planet, maybe only a little, maybe a whole lot. And I'm not saying that everybody needs to go out and educate themselves about every single supply chain for every product on earth. Obviously that's impossible. But just kind of recognize, you know, realize that everything you use came at a cost, right? It came out of the earth somewhere and was probably harvested or mined by, by folks who are probably not, you know, who are probably pretty disadvantaged compared to those of us in the rich world. And, um, you know, that's just really something to bear in mind and to you know, to do your research on and to sort of keep tabs on. And the kind of the real bottom line for me, when you when you start to think about it that way, like, oh my God, well, how can we, oh, I need to use less sand. Oh, I need to use less, you know, I need to eat less tuna. I need to stop wearing rubber sneakers because of the terrible conditions on rubber plantations. I mean, the bottom line is kind of the same for everything, which is just that we human beings, first and foremost, us here in the rich world, we need to use less. We just need to consume less of everything. So any way you can do that, any way that you can sort of, you know, promote the idea of a more cyclical economy, a more sustainable economy, a lower consuming economy, that's gonna help. Walking around. What has been one of the most impactful books that you've read or publications you follow? Okay, uh, the Broken Earth Trilogy by N.K. Jemison. She's a science fiction writer. Okay, it's science fiction. It's, you know, it's not reality-based, but man, it's just such a like really well-thought-out picture of a society that has to deal with really apocalyptic conditions with natural disasters that occur over and over again and how they deal with it and how they organize themselves. It's just really fascinating. And I think even though it's fiction, there's a lot of really profound lessons in it. Mm. What has been a personal motto, mantra, or practice that you engage with to stay grounded? Okay. I'll go with practice, bicycling. 
Why bicycling? Not only is it super fun and really good exercise, but it is a great way to minimize your footprint on the earth. Mm. Instead of using cars, cars have got to be the most wasteful, most ridiculous form of transport ever invented. And bicycles are just so elegant and simple and graceful and clean by comparison that it just makes me feel happy every time I'm riding my bike. Amazing. Yeah. And the infrastructure to support people to feel safer biking everywhere also needs to be improved. And finally, what is one of your biggest sources of inspiration at the moment? Got to be my kids. My kids, my kids just make me happy every day. And uh, when I, you know, the world is so overwhelming sometimes and everything, you know, it can just seem like everything's so awful and everything's so hopeless. But if you have kids, you can't give up, right? You can't just say, okay, the world sucks and I'm just going to leave you this, you know, screwed up world that I birthed you into. No, no, no. I got to do, I got to do whatever I can to make it a better place for them. Hmm. Well, Green Dreamer, we are coming to a wrap here, but to learn more and stay updated on Vince's work, you can head to vincebeiser.com and we will have more references from this episode shared in our show notes at greendreamer.com. Vince, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing your wealth of knowledge on this topic of sand and beyond. For now, though, what final words of wisdom do you have for us as Green Dreamers? I would say just to, I, I kind of already said it, but again, like, the number one thing that I think we as individuals can do to really make an immediate change that actually matters in the world is fewer cars. Do whatever you can do to avoid owning a car, to push wherever you live, to develop public transit, bicycle infrastructure, make things easier to get around by walking. Cars are the biggest source of greenhouse gases in the world. Cars use up just unbelievable, obscene amounts of natural resources all over the world, we need fewer cars. And that's something that is actually something that's within, you know, unlike so many of the problems that 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 we often think about, that's one that's actually in the power of most of us to actually make a concrete immediate difference with. Don't get a car. If you can if at all you can avoid it, don't get a car. If you learned from or feel inspired by this conversation, we would so appreciate your support through a donation of any amount today at greendreamer.com support. As it stands, we can't continue our show beyond this year, but if every listener committed to chipping in just $2 a month, we would reach our fundraising goals in no time and be able to sustainably continue producing our show while remaining untethered to corporate interests. You can also help us out a lot by submitting a five-star review in the podcast app and share your favorite episodes out with your loved ones. Our song featured today is At the Edge of It by Oro Pandola. Our audio producer is Scott Donnell. Our supporting researcher is Anissa Simahali. Our production manager is Emma Jeffrey. And I'm your host, Kamea Shane. Thank you for tuning in, and I'll catch you soon in the next episode. <laughs>